0: I'm um, fairly regularly pulling out my phone and googling who was this person or what, you know, trying to find out details because history and people are just fascinating and biblical history is fascinating as well and one of the things, realize, you go back two, three thousand years, uh, the times and or the names and faces or people have changed but human nature hasn't changed a bit and the same issues that we find happening in our culture, in our world today uh, happened in the biblical world. And so I'm doing a little bit of background study on the book of Zephaniah this week in preparation for this message. And um, Zephaniah, the prophet, wrote during the uh, reign of King Josiah, whom our fine friend in the second row is named after. And, uh, and King, King Josiah reigned from around 640 to 609 BC. And it was right, right sort of in a power vacuum between two of the world powers um, of the day. And Assyria had been the, the great empire of, of the world, and they had destroyed the northern kingdom, Israel, in 722 BC, if you remember that from your Old Testament history. But then Assyria, quickly after that, came onto a decline, and they were in great decline. Eventually, Babylon, who was rising, destroyed Nineveh. But right between the decline of Syria and the rise of Babylon, King Josiah reigned, and because of that power vacuum, Israel or Judah actually had had a real political resurgence, economic resurgence, and had quite a um, It was just—it was a new day for Judah at that time. And if you remember, Josiah was a very godly king. His grandfather Hezekiah, great grandfather actually, very godly man. And then there was Manasseh, one of the most wicked kings in all of Israel's history, Judah's history. Reigned for nearly 50 years. Manasseh brought Baal worship in. He brought—he worshipped the sun, moon, and stars. He put objects to those gods in the temple. Uh, Manasseh had child sacrifice, astrology was rampant during his reign, just unbelievable wickedness during the period of Manasseh's reign, which was which was one thing that made the destruction of Judah inevitable in just a few generations down the road. Just, uh, Josiah's father Ammon Reigned for only two years. And then Josiah became king at age eight. Age eight. That's inconceivable, isn't it? Well, at age 16, Josiah began to seek after the God of his fathers. And he really was a godly, a godly teenager. And that should challenge some of you young people. You don't have to wait to pursue the Lord. But Josiah, at age 16, began to seek the Lord. and uh, And... Under his reign, there was a real revival, a reform movement, and he cleansed the temple, brought back the Passover celebration, quite a revival in Judah. But in some ways, it, it, well, it was real, but it didn't permeate the whole culture. There was still a lot of wickedness underneath in the culture around, and that's the setting into which Zephaniah had his ministry, his prophetic ministry, And as we look at the book of Zephaniah, this little prophet this morning, I'm going to have two points. Number one, judgment, God's abhorrence of sin. And point number two, salvation, God's abundance of mercy and grace to humble, repentant sinners. God's judgment, his abhorrence of sin, and salvation, his abundance of mercy. So let's pray as we look into this prophecy. Father, this morning, as we open your word... Father, we all have minds that can read words and think about them, but Lord, we we need and ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts, or you would do supernaturally what we can't do intellectually, and that is to really grasp and respond to your truth, to see your, your holiness, and then your love and grace expressed in this wonderful prophecy of Zephaniah. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So with point one, what I want to do is take um, a real quick uh, eight or ten minute fly through of the first two and a half chapters, just as the horrible prophecies of judgment. So if you'll open your Bible there at Zephaniah, it's right near the end of the Old Testament. Of those of you who Google it, probably don't care where it is in the order, huh? But if you um, are flipping through your Bible right before you get to the between the Testament, it's... Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So very close to the end of the Old Testament. And I'm going to sort of um, read, read quite a few, quite a bit of the first couple chapters, but not all of it. So Zephaniah chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. That's probably Hezekiah the king. He may well have been the grandson of Hezekiah the king. In the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, and here it just jumps right in. The Lord says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Sounds like the flood, doesn't it? What God said back in Genesis chapter 6. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, worshiping the sun, moon, and stars. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom." Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. So from the very outset, Zephaniah is prophesying God's worldwide judgment. God has had it with the wickedness of the world in that day. Man and beast, birds, fish, not only the surrounding nation, but God's people themselves, Judah and Jerusalem, are going to come under His judgment because of their idolatry and wickedness. In verses 7 to 13, he begins to speak about the day of the Lord. And look down at verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Chapter 2. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation. Speaking to Judah. They should have been shamed, but they weren't. Gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. And here's a window of hope in verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. In verses 4 through 15, Zephaniah prophesies against the nations surrounding Judah there, the, the Philistines, the Moabites and the Ammonites, the Cushites, probably Egypt, and then Assyria, that, that powerful, the, the reigning empire there on decline. And look at verse 15, this is of chapter 2. This is speaking of Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. A lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. When we start chapter three, it sounds at first like it's still speaking of, Isaiah, of of Assyria and Nineveh, but it's not. Woe to her, who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. she accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near. To her God, so this is back to Judah, God's people, her officials within her are roaring lions, her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men, her priests profane what is holy, they do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous, He does no injustice every morning. He shows forth his justice each dawn he does not fail, but is un- but the unjust knows. No shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. Makes me think of what's going on in some of the Ukrainian cities or in some of our own cities, Portland. Cities have been made desolate. And I said, Surely you will fear me, you will accept correction. God says this oftentimes in the prophets, when you see his judgment on someone else, why don't you repent and respond? I said, surely you will fear me, you will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Words like this are no fun to read, very sobering. But do any of us think that our day, our world, our nation is any less wicked than, the, than in Zephaniah's day? And I think about our, our country and all the good that has come out of the United States and what a, how much God has blessed us and the way he has blessed the world in many ways through this country. And we thank God for that. So much good God has done in and through the United States. And yet we look around and we see blatant and pervasive corruption in our government. We see this, here the steady stream of lies that come from our leaders and our experts. The push for acceptance and lifestyle of norms and in direct defiance of God's word and his beautiful design. The idolatry and hypocrisy it seems in more and more leaders of the church. Violence, injustice and oppression. Ongoing murder of babies, the rising tide of the culture of death. Do we think that if Zephaniah showed up today with a prophetic word from the Lord, would it be much different than chapter 3, verse 8? When Zephaniah or other prophets spoke of the day of the Lord, it had both a near future fulfillment... In their case, it was the coming destruction at the hands of Babylon, okay, in 586. That was the near-future fulfillment of the day of the Lord. But it also had a far-future aspect, the ultimate day of the Lord, at the return of Jesus, that we still are anticipating for our future. And when we read the book of Revelation, which much is still future for us, right, and prophecies of war, famine, killing a third of the population, or pandemics... Maybe like Ebola that will kill a third of the people. And we just, wow. Trying to imagine that kind of judgment and devastation. It makes you tremble. But it's going to happen, isn't it, brothers and sisters? It is going to happen. God, Our God does not tell fibs and fables. Our God is a holy God. And when judgment came on Judah... The judgment was aimed at the wicked, but it still touched God's people who were faithful. Daniel and his three friends, they were taken from parents. Their parents hauled off to Babylon. Jeremiah suffered greatly because of the judgment that came on his people. So while God's judgment is not aimed at us as his people, it does. it, It rakes us. It affects us and purifies us. Peter says in his letter, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So this is the first part of Zephaniah's prophetic message. Judgment because our God is a holy God Who abhors sin, all sin, our sin, that should humble us and sober us and cause us to tremble and to evaluate our own lives. But then we come to chapter 3, verse 9, and as Zephaniah is looking into the future to this coming day of the Lord suddenly there is a complete change in his tone and message. And these final 12 verses are a message of mercy and salvation and hope. So this is point two, salvation, God's abundance of mercy and grace to humble, repentant sinners. So Zephaniah, he's still looking to that same future, that same day of the Lord with its near future and far future prediction. And All of these promises that we now read are going to be wrapped up in the promised Messiah, the coming of Jesus, our Lord Jesus, the Lord of the church. So let's read verses 9 through 20. Zephaniah writes, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then, I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments against you, He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I'm going to read that verse again. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. There are four sub I want us to think about here in this second section, this section of Salvation. These last twelve verses of chapter three, and the first is God's power to convert people and nations. In verse eleven or nine and ten, God says, that "At that time, I will change the speech of the peoples." And this is not merely talking about the Jews and the Israelites; it's just talking about Jews and Gentiles, all the peoples of all nations. God's saving work—the same ones He is saying I am bringing judgment on. He is also saying, "I'm going to change their speech from false worship of God to true worship of the true God." And if that's going to happen, if He has just told them He's going to judge them and they're they're unrepentant and and hard-hearted, the only way that's going to happen is if a sovereign God acts, is it not? If He works to change the hearts and lives of people, and we we never hear these things in the news. But now and then I'll hear, um, and you, you probably do too, think coming out of Iran, there are more Muslims coming to Christ today than there have been in generations. And we don't hear that on the news, but God is at work in the midst of terrible oppression in some of these countries. Iran is one of them. A couple of weeks ago we had lunch with Lee and Deb Jacobs, and they were talking about uh, in, I can hardly pronounce the word, Kyrgyz, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, one of the Central Asian republics. And when the USSR broke apart in 1989, and then they were able to go in with some medical mission trips, come in with medical help, share the gospel. And churches are growing in a country that Satan and the Soviet Union tried to squash for years without the gospel. God is doing a great work all around the world. He is working sovereignly to change people's hearts and bring them Convert them to Jesus Christ. So what a hope that is. God's power to convert people and nations. And then, in verses 11 to 13, God's promise that he will not shame us for our former sins. This is really remarkable to me. Because God says in verse 11, On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me the very things that God has condemned in chapters 1 to 3 of his people, he says, you're not going to be put to shame because of those deeds. For then I will remove... Let me wait just a minute on that. He's not going to put us to shame for our past sinful deeds and rebellion. There are so many things in my heart, both past and present, if they were put up on the screen here, it would be a horrifically bad moment for me. And I imagine that's the same for each one of you, right? If our hearts were exposed for others to see, people pointed, look, look at that, look at that, Phil. Was that what you were thinking about? That would be a very bad Have you ever been shamed by a big brother or sister or perhaps your dad or mom or teacher or somebody at school, somebody who's trumpeted aloud your failings and flaws? I think all of, ha- of us have some painful memories like that. Some of you have probably experienced a ton of that. The picture I have in my mind is someone over me just pointing their finger and just telling me over and over, you're a failure, remind me of the messes I've done and you're worthless you're stupid no good just being shamed and ridiculed and mocked our heavenly father knows every single flaw and failing in us right everyone not just the ones we're aware of He, he knows all the rest also and he promises he will never never put us to shame for all those sins we've committed against him never not if we're a certain kind of people and what is that kind of people he goes on the rest of verse 11 says because i will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain but i will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly they shall seek refuge in the name of the lord so what kind of people does god promise he'll never shame us over our past sins Those who are humble and lowly and seek refuge in the name of Yahweh, who seek salvation in Jesus. And instead of shaming us, do you know what our God does over us? Instead of standing over us, pointing out, reminding us, do you know what he does over us? Well, let's read on. Verse 14 and 15. He says, Sing aloud. O daughter of Zion. So the, um, the, t- the first two chapters had no singing, right? I mean, talk about oh, bad news. Now he's saying, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil our Heavenly Father who abhors all sin, all of your sin. He's converted us, right? He converts us. Then He promises not to shame us for our former sins. Then He says He has removed all our judgments from us. The very sins and wickedness that are bringing judgment down on those around us who do not do not trust him and believe him. How can that be? He abhors our sin. Does he just sweep it under the rug of the universe? No. The Bible makes it very clear there's only one way. There's only one way that he can remove our sins from us. And that is because he placed them on someone else. God himself found and put forward a substitute for you and me. Who did he find? The most glorious person in the entire universe. His own beloved son, Jesus. The only person through all time in history who had ever fully obeyed him and pleased him. God made him who knew no sin, who had never sinned. He made him to be sin for us. And our great and wrathful day of the Lord Happened 2,000 years ago outside of Jerusalem at Calvary, right? When all the holy wrath of God, against your sin and my sin, was poured out on Jesus. God crushed him under the wrath of his son, his sin, his ra- under his wrath against your sin and my sin. And what's the result for us who believe? 2 Corinthians 5.21 goes on. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Verse 14 and 15 again. No wonder Zephaniah says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. The Lord has taken away your judgments against you he has cleared away your enemies and this brings us into subpoint c god's passion for us and these next two verses 16 14, 16 and 17 express how this king in our midst feels about us how does not just what has he done for us how does he feel about us so look at verses 16 and 17 on that day it shall be said through some fear not o zion Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Palmer Robertson writes in his commentary, one of the most awesome descriptions of the wrath of God in judgment found anywhere in scripture appears in the opening verses of Zephaniah. One of the most moving descriptions of the love of God for his people found anywhere in scripture appears in these closing verses in Zephaniah. God and his people attained heights in the ecstasy of love that are hard to comprehend, aren't they? This is not how we typically think about God, I don't think. I think we often feel he's just putting up with me. Oh, Phil, is it you again? Same thing again? Maybe we think God would really not like to mess with us, but Jesus died for us, so God has to. okay, I got it, you know, I got to put. Okay, he'll let me in, but he's really busy with other things. I think that's how we often think about God rather disappointed with us. I'm too stupid, too ugly. Nobody cares about me. Most people ignore me. I failed at most everything. I keep sinning. But God looks at his children and this is what he says. This is what the Bible says about him. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with singing. What is this imagery, brothers and sisters? Where do we see that happen? Who who do we sing over? Who do we quiet with our love? I love being a grandfather. And when I watch Abby and Joey with their little almost two-month-old baby, it is wonderful. I watch Carol holding that little boy. It's an amazing thing. I love to hold this little boy. And with our children, our grandchildren, what what do we do, parents? We sing to them, right? the same child who kept me up half the night last night, couldn't sleep at all, you know, wake up. But right now, we exult over them, we're singing, we quiet them with our love. Same one who's going to disobey us in a couple hours. Okay, so ask ourselves this question. Are we more loving parents than our Heavenly Father is? No way. I have that thought, and I have to quickly say, Phil, don't, don't go there. But that's what we think, isn't it? We think God loves no, God doesn't love me as much as I love my kids. My affection for my kids is Dare we think that that our heavenly Father loves us less than we love our children? Mm-mm. Palmer Robertson writes again. About this love, The love of God for his own people is not a soft, sentimental emotion that has no strength to act on behalf of its object. For this God who loves is Yahweh, a mighty hero who saves, a warrior who overpowers his enemies. As the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the mighty God, the hero, he defends the orphan, the widow, and the alien. And so we put together this wonderful, incomprehensible affection with the power of a mighty warrior father. This is our heavenly father, brothers and sisters. I love being married to Carol, and I'm amazed after all these years that when I come home at the end of the day, she's still happy to see me. And she accepts me, and she loves me. And she knows an awful lot about me. But brothers and sisters, there is someone who loves me and loves you infinitely more than any one of us love our spouses. Isn't there? That's our Heavenly Father, and that's Jesus, our Savior. Every one of us wants and needs to be loved and to know that we are loved. And here it is for all of us simply to believe and receive it. Palmer Robertson writes again that Almighty God should derive delight from his own creation is significant in itself. But that the Holy One should experience ecstasy over the sinner it's incomprehensible, isn't it? God breaking out and singing? God joyful with delight? All because of you. You believe that? I think it's easy to believe that God loves, well, he loves all Christians in general, right? Well, he loves that Christian. We can share that with someone else. God But the question this morning, do you believe that for you? Do you really? And not just do you, will you? Will you believe that when God says this, he means this about you? He rejoices over you with gladness. He quiets you by his love. He exults over you with loud singing. The final few verses here, point D, are God's great reversal, his restoration of all that we have lost. And in this final section, the prophet turns to the first person. And eight times God says, I will, I will, I will. It's almost like he's getting a little more, even more personal, if we can think of that from verses 16. But more personal, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to restore everything that you have lost in this world of sin and brokenness. And he mentions festivals. He mentions that they were mourning that. When, when, when Judah went, when they went into captivity, can you imagine every festival that should have brought joy just brought grief, right? They were outcast, they felt oppressed. So for the faithful believing Israelite, the grief at their own sin and the sin of the surrounding culture, suffering just brought mourning and reproach and shame and pain. And we can experience that today in many ways. Often things that God intends For our joy and celebration are very painful, aren't they? Because of brokenness in our lives. What God promises is that one day. He is going to reverse all of that. And on the second to the last line there in verse 20. When I restore your fortunes before your very eyes. First song we sang this morning. How long, O Lord. Was an expression of that longing and hope, right? Lord, how how long till you fix all this? That's what the Beatitudes are about in Matthew, aren't they? Blessed are the poor in spirit now, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn now, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness now, they shall be satisfied. God is going to reverse everything, every broken thing he will make right, every loss he will restore. 2 Corinthians 4, 6-18 says, we don't lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, Paul's not saying that it's, it's easy and it's nothing. Paul suffered greatly, but in comparison, he calls it light and momentary. He says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. God will turn every one of these hurts and losses into eternal joy that oh, we can't even imagine at this point. Jesus in Revelation 25 says, "Behold, I am making all things new." Yeah. So a couple questions here, just by application, and Chris if, and if you and the worship team will come back. So two things. Number one, judgment is coming. God's a holy God. He abhors sin, all sin, our sin doesn't matter where you go in the Bible. There's Old Testament, New Testament, the Gospels. They all bring this warning. God will bring fiery judgment on our sinful world. Are you ready for that great day, that great and terrible day? Do you have a mighty Savior who will shield you from the wrath to come? Teenagers, younger children, older folks, none of us, none of us, not one of us will be able to avoid that day of judgment. Your one hope is to entrust your life to one who has already borne all of God's wrath against your sin. Right now, you may be separated from God. You may be under his wrath right now, separated from all his love. But that can change in a moment if you will respond to his wide-open invitation to receive his son Jesus as your savior from the awful wrath to come. You can just accept and receive and believe and say, I that's what I need, that's what I want. Lord, save me. What is keeping you from trusting Him today? Judgment is coming. Question number two if you have trusted in Jesus and are washed in his blood from all your sin and guilt, here's your question. Do you believe Zephaniah 3.17? Not just that it's true for Christians in general, for someone else, but do you believe that he rejoices over you with gladness? That he will quiet you with his love? That he exalts over you with loud singing? Do you believe that? Brothers and sisters, let's let's not sin by disbelieving what our Heavenly Father has clearly told us about His love for each one of us. Don't say, I don't deserve it. Nobody thinks that you deserve it. None of us deserve it. The Apostle Paul, who described himself as the worst of sinners, a blasphemer, persecutor, murderer, He knew he didn't deserve one iota of God's love. But he believed what God said about his love. And you remember what he writes in Galatians 2.20. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Your and my greatest sins are probably not the ones we think keep God from loving us. My greatest sin, your greatest sin, may be that when we go to him confess those sins, we refuse to believe what he tells us. You refuse to believe what he tells you. That in spite of those sins, he loves you and rejoices over you and exults over you as singing. So your job, your one response today, Responding to God's word is to believe in when he tells you. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a mighty one to save. He rejoices over you with gladness. He quiets you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that our flesh and our sinful hearts do not believe this and resist believing this. We, we can't imagine that there is a God this good who loves us. But what we're asking for is the work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, it's a supernatural work because we can think of all kinds of reasons why this can't be true about me. Would you just begin, just continue your gracious work of communicating to us how much you love each one of us Lord for those who have not yet trusted in Jesus who are separated from this love who don't know this love who can't know this love because Lord they're they under your wrath Father would you help them to receive and believe that you've given them a savior the same Jesus they would embrace him and trust in him and enter into this amazing relationship of having you as our heavenly father in jesus name we pray Amen. let's stand